IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we review the new album by Band of Horses. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He was just purchased by a video game company, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I cannot believe you're just putting my business out there. Like, I've not actually been bought yet. I'm trying to, like, foster a bidding war. Right now, like, my main competitors are the guy who created Leisure Suit Larry and made uh, Drug War for the TI-83. I mean, <laughs> if there's... Look, I, I just want to be Ian, the people with the... Are, the, the people are upset, Ian, because you are <laughs> abandoning your indie roots. No, your we're not. altruistic support <laughs> of the DIY scene has been compromised by this lapse. I know you're rolling in the money. <laughs> now uh, you're going. You know, there's going to be ads for Fortnite just popping up on this show. <laughs> we are all going to do the floss dance with Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. okay. So, so we should say yes. what we're referring to is Bandcamp, the uh, beloved platform for indie artists that they can sell their music directly to fans uh artists make more money uh per record on bandcamp than they do really on any other uh, streaming platform they were bought this week by epic games which is the company that makes fortnite in a statement uh they said that bandcamp will play an important role in epic's vision to build out a creator marketplace ecosystem For content, technology, games, art, music, and more. So music was listed fifth on that list uh, after content and technology, but they weren't lumped. Music wasn't lumped into and more. So I guess that's the that's the glasses half full. Looking, <laughs> yeah. Sh- looking sh- at it. Shout shout to music. It doesn't get lo- like uh, you know whatever and more signifies like music. No, that's totally separate. So I mean. Not ahead of, but not ahead of content. Yes. Uh, which, by the way, I mean, I guess anything could be content. But, True. But content is first on the list. Content, number one. Technology, number two. Those are the things that are dominant in the creator marketplace ecosystem. Mm. What the fuck is a creator marketplace ecosystem? <sighs> Look, man, I mean, the, the one thing that stands out to me about this compared to the other situations where you see a idealistic kind of indie rooted um creator marketplace you know like whether we're talking about like the av club or whatever getting swallowed up by a big company at the very least epic games like makes something you know it's not like geo media which just you know buys up publications and like strips them down to the studs and then sells it out like through hedge funds i don't know maybe there maybe there is something that good that will come of this maybe like i don't know the writers at Bandcamp might get paid better or something right yeah and it yeah because there was a lot of hyperventilating on yeah social media this week about this i saw people saying you better download your files now you know because who knows what's going to happen i don't think that they're going to I mean, I don't think they bought the site so they could uh, zombify it. You know, no. I think it's still going to be. I mean, there may be a change in terms of uh, how it interfaces with the audience. I mean, it's certainly not going to have the same image that it had before. And you and I have talked about this. We're both fans of Bandcamp. Yeah. But there is this perception <laughs> of 
that company that they are almost like the Red Cross or they're like <laughs> Goodwill Industries, that they're this altruistic um, organization and not a company. Yeah. And they're a company. And they're this... a tech platform. Of... Exactly. And they do a lot of good things. I uh, Again, I think in terms of streaming platforms, it is uh, the best for artists uh, without question. Mm-hmm. Um but it also has a relatively small footprint, and yeah. maybe this will expand their footprint. Like if you want to look at it from an optimistic point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really all we can do because you, you'll hear bands talk about like how you know they make more money per sale off Bandcamp, but in reality, it takes a lot more uh, to make you know, like money from Bandcamp sales than it does for to say like sell a hoodie at the show. You know? Um, yeah, I just don't know like. I don't know, like, what chunk of uh, money in a band's income comes from Bandcamp, but, like, let's also point out the fact that, like, Fortnite, even before this, has a pretty good, um, you know, it has a pretty big uh, footprint in the music industry. I think that during the early pandemic, you would see festivals hosted in Fortnite and Minecraft. I think uh, certain artists have taken to premiering music, I think, on Fortnite, um, or Twitch. I don't know. I think that there is a lot of ground to explore in the confluence between video games and music. I don't know. Maybe we're just going to get like a better Tony Hawk soundtrack out of this. Like maybe Fortnite is going to be like the new Tony Hawk soundtrack where like all these indie bands are that are, or like when I think of Bandcamp, I think of like ambient music or like, um, you know, like uh, international music. Maybe there's going to be like a Tony Hawk for that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it just shows again like how small music is in the yeah. overall entertainment business. It, it, it's Absolutely. always amazing to be reminded of that because you know we're both music fans. We host this music podcast. We're very fixated. Have on you this ever world. played Fortnite? Never played Fortnite, but I'm apparently in the minority of of human beings because yeah. I mean, video games it just dwarfs um, the music business. I mean, it's yeah. just huge. You know, no, there's no like record label that's going to be buying a video game company. At some point, maybe <laughs> video game companies will be buying every record label yeah. uh, under the sun. Um, someone online made a point that I thought was interesting. Um, mm. And this was a person that was like a little bit critical of Bandcamp, just talking about how we're at a point now on the internet where it seems like every facet of the music business now is professional. Yeah. You know, if you look back 15 years ago during the height of blogs, for instance, you know, it was much more common for just a regular person, you know, an amateur, like that, a professional music journalist or something to have a blog that would have a pretty big reach and they could have influence that way. And Bandcamp, the emergence of that platform, it, it underscored the idea the idea that even like in indie spaces or DIY spaces, that the that space was dominated by this tech platform. That again, I think had the facade of being this uh mom and pop, uh altruistic uh company, but all along they were a tech platform. And this reminds us of that. Um but th- anyway, the person online was lamenting the idea that there just isn't a space it seems like that's significant anymore that mm. isn't just tied up in big money. Yeah. You know, like you can't just be a regular person now <laughs> and sell music or have a blog or whatever it is and uh and make an impact. It, and I thought that was a pretty good point. I mean, it, it, that does seem to be the case. I think it took to like I don't know, to the mid 2000s, like 2004 or 5 and for, before like pitchfork writers to start getting paid. 
um, it's been a very small window of time for most music writing to be uh, monetized. And in some ways, it's like, hey, cool, there's more ways to make money. Uh, I remember back in 2003 and four that like it was basically impossible to get paid unless you wrote for an alt weekly or like a bigger magazine. And hey, cool, people are now getting paid. But it does speak to, I don't know, maybe like a greater cynicism of it all uh, where, you know, people are kind of collaborating in a weird sort of way with the music industry. Like, you know, how most music writers are seen as being like PR, like basically like B team PR or music being seen as like a kind of loss leader for a greater musical success. I mean, look, the one thing we can always promise to our IndieCast listeners is that like we have no qualms about selling out if anyone's buying. Like you, we are not claiming any sort of moral superiority. Um, you know, we are still very open if the Innings Festival wants to sponsor us. Um, like we, we, we're very open to corporate synergy. Absolutely. Epic Games, uh, are uh, DM us anytime you want. Yes. We are open to negotiation. Uh, Monster Energy Drink. Mm. If you want to get into the music uh, industry here, uh, buy us up. Uh, we will <laughs> shill for anything on this show. Yes. Uh, it, it, it is. We have no qualms. We are not making judgments on anybody uh, for uh, getting the bag. Wow, that's a that's a that's a really contemporary form of lingo you just dropped right there. Very out of character. If like I'm it. gonna be honest, it's because I've heard Colin Cowherd say it on oh, this podcast. God. So I, I learned oh. it from Colin Cowherd. That that's <laughs> so, you know I don't I don't want to be uh, fronting like I am actually any in in any way cool. So Steve has been watching Euphoria, trying to get uh <laughs> trying to get his slang up. Uh, I, everything I talk about on the show comes from me listening to sports podcasts uh, <laughs> during my uh, daily walk. That's that's where we that's where IndieCast keeps its cutting edge. Absolutely, uh, we got to talk about this Charlie XCX uh, story. Uh, she, we absolutely do. Her uh, arguing with her fans about whether her <laughs> new music sucks. Is, yeah. uh, is that the crux of the story here? Like yeah. she's been warring with fans and social media. Because the stands aren't liking her new singles, yeah. and she's and she's calling them out. I I gotta read this. Uh, I gotta read the, the, this tweet or the, these excerpts from her tweets. I, were these deleted? Do you know? I don't know if these are still. up. I think they're still up because I saw them on uh, Stereo Gum. Okay. Um, I gotta give Carly if if they're still up. I gotta give her credit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she engages with people. Yes, on, she, on, does. she she engaged with me briefly. A few years ago, because I did this thread uh, where I took screenshots of headlines from the past 10 years of uh, music websites calling her the future of music, oh, the yeah. future of pop music. And that's a narrative for her that begins in like 2011. <laughs> and every single year, there I could find a headline, someone calling her the future of pop music. And it's like, at what point does the future arrive? Mm. Because she's been the future of pop music since 2011. I don't know. That just became like a like a thing for her that people, like writers like to say that about her. Yeah, but the future of pop music kind of is uh, pop stars arguing directly with their uh, stand base. So, you know, so it's been it, all leading up to this. This yeah. is her realizing her destiny Yes, as the future of pop music. So uh, I'm just going to preface this. This, these are her words, not mine. She says, uh, and this is reference. Is there what was the name of her single? It's called uh, Baby. Yeah, it's something like called that. Baby. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, this new album is 
to a degree that maybe our previous ones aren't like maybe more of like a, a legitimate pop move as opposed to like maybe like pop adjacent or something right. like that. Like people see this as like the, the general vibe I'm getting from people who like follow Charlie XCX to a high degree is that like this sound, like these singles sound like something that Dua Lipa passed on. But um, <laughs> right. That, 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 yeah. It's just the, the, the hype isn't there like there seems to be this festering ambient sense of disappointment around uh it so why don't you go ahead and let us know how charlie xcx responded okay so yeah so people are slagging her for this song i think it's called baby yeah and and apparently she dances in the video and people were criticizing her dance moves suggesting that this was a label edict that Ah. she danced in her videos that didn't seem organic to her i guess um and uh, apparently, like, one of her stands called her mother. Yeah. And that uh, that set her off. She says, if you want to throw around midlife crisis, fucking throw it at me. I'm getting older. I'm getting hotter. My tits are stunning. Once again, again, those are her this words. Is, this is the, her words. <laughs> her, I'm quoting her accurately. Yeah. I'm in great shape. I'm dancing. I'm progressing. And I'm living my best life. And that the T. The typo really fucking makes this statement. She's saying that's the T, I think. Yes. I we have to like get like a parenthetical S I C in there, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. For for the for those who are, I don't know, maybe if there's like a transcription of this. So then she uh, says, again, not bothered that some people will always have their preferred eras, etc. That's why it's fun being an angel. There's so much variety. But if you don't think baby is a bop, then ellipses. IDK, that's just very suspicious to me. No, that's V suspicious to me. That's that's important. That's that's V suspicious to me. Yeah. I that's right. I I am uh, uh, assuming it means very suspicious. Yes, it does. So she's so she's <laughs> suspicious of people that don't like her song. Yeah, I don't know what she, I don't know what the suspicion is there. Like uh, that you have bad taste, or that you're lying, or mm-hmm. that you're just a hater. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> this, this is not a good place to be in, though, when you're arguing with your fans about whether your new single's good or not. You don't want to be in that position. No, and you know, the, I think there, there, there's like a post, um, there's like an epilogue to this story where that recently she um, dropped out of an NFT festival because of like fan <laughs> backlash. I mean, got. Like, uh, I, she had, like... See, that is they, the real tragedy. The NFT festival, they... This was going to be an historic event. It was going to be the Woodstock of NFT festivals. Uh, like, she Charlie, had to drop out because of the, the stands. Festival. Like, just... If you're going to, like, really hold your ground, like... Well, uh, I, I don't know. I think I think it, it, it's indicative, reflective of, like, a quite pernicious um, or hilarious, depending on how you look at it, uh, trend in pop music where... Um, it's the sense that like you kind of have to cater to your fans or that like you owe your fans an explanation. I've heard this discussed recently with like TV, like how you couldn't have a show like lost anymore where like you can leave your fans confused, like fans demand answers immediately. And, um, I don't know, like I, this is not like a daddy's home or like a reflector style, like album rollout. But what I know this album rollout for right now is that, she releases a single, like maybe a small percentage of the fan base is loudly uh, against it. And then Charlie XCX reacts and the vibes are not immaculate right now, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is going to be the album that I'm really into by Charlie XCX. I'm ho- I am almost feel like we have to review this album when it, when it comes up. I've written about Charlie XCX before and I, I generally like her music. Again, I think the narrative around her, 
I just think it's funny that she's been called the future of pop music in every article for the past 10 years. But here uh, we are. <laughs> yeah, it was all leading up to this. Um, I almost uh, don't want to bring this story up because I think it's a totally <laughs> manufactured story. Uh, this, but, but this is what IndieCast is all about. I, we... I guess so. I mean, the Mitski thing where... Okay, so she w- w- was this last week? I mean, this thing has oh gone God. on forever. Uh, it, it's like one of those stories that like drops on like a Sunday or something like that. And you just kind of hope, I really hope this has enough legs for us to talk about it on Thursday. People just kept, so, uh, so Mitski, uh, last week or maybe over the weekend, she did this, uh, Twitter thread. I think it was Instagram. That's why, like, I don't, I thought I saw it on Twitter. Uh, You, you probably know better than I do. So I thought I saw it on Twitter, but it could have been on Instagram. I think it was deleted. No, maybe that's why. Because it kicked up such a, a fuss, but the, the gist of her thread was, she was saying, um, I don't really appreciate it when people film me at my shows or, mm-hmm. or you know, take a lot of photos because I feel like it takes them out of the experience of uh, seeing me live. Okay. And the response to that, at least what I saw, I didn't see anyone chastising her no. for saying this. Certainly not to the degree that people chastise Jack White for doing essentially the same thing. Right. You know, people, like, you know, nailed him to the cross for wanting, you know, because he wanted to take people's phones away on his upcoming tour. Mitski, the reaction I saw was basically people saying, you know, good for you. Yeah. You know, we're with you. And then there were a lot of people saying... The people reacting negatively to this or who are angry about it, this is proof that... You know, we look at pop stars as commodities, and we don't respect them enough. Mm-hmm. And it just made me think, again, we've referred to this so many times on the show, but the classic Kill a Cow yes. Twitter user who's a listener of our show. Who, by the way, created an IndieCast bingo that we really appreciate here. Oh, yeah, he he uh, he nailed us. Although, he didn't put on there, because he, he, he basically put on all of the cliches of our show yeah. on this bingo card he didn't put ian how are you on there i think that's yeah. the big one thing he missed anyway kill a cow he has this classic tweet where and i forget the exact wording but it's something like i was told steph but i was told steph curry can't shoot right yeah. this idea of inventing someone to be mad at yeah <laughs> which is what happens all the time on twitter maybe there were like two or three bots yeah that, you know clap back at mitski for this mm-hmm. but it just created this totally fake story that people were mad at Mitski about. I mean, I, am I wrong? I mean, I, I just feel like if there was a negative reaction, it was far outweighed yeah. by people supporting her. Yeah, this is like one of those stories where if I happen to have a fairly busy day at my real life job, I'll miss it completely because there's no actual news story anchoring it or no actual backlash aside from maybe a couple of Twitter eggs. Like you just see... Like one tweet talking about it, it's got like thirty five thousand likes, and I'm like, what? What is anyone even talking about? Because I don't follow Mitski on Instagram, uh, nor do I follow her on Twitter. And the interesting thing is that I'm pretty sure it says on her Twitter that her management runs it. Um, either way, it's you know, it's the old conversation about like, oh, does be does having a phone out like take you out of the experience? I don't know. Maybe it does, but. You know, for me, it's like I went to see Foxing and Manchester Orchestra um, this past Sunday. And, you know, having a phone out was like a very important part of it. Like, I like to film, you know, the 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 big parts of the Foxing songs I know and love. 
post them and it's a way of like kind of boosting a band particularly if they're you know about a year removed away from putting out an album i think bands appreciate that they tend to retweet that stuff yeah i uh i interviewed dave hartley the bass player from the war on drugs when i wrote my i wrote a profile of the war on drugs recently about their current tour and he was talking about like when the band plays um I don't live here anymore. The title track of their most recent album. Mm. He says a lot of phones come out right. when we play that song, and he meant that as a positive thing. Like he yeah. meant that as like a song that people are excited about, and it's maybe the new version of like putting a lighter in the air. You yeah. know, like you you see the phones go up, and then you know, oh, this is the anthem. People are excited about it. Yeah. I mean, this is a again. We've talked about this before, like when Jack White had his whole thing about pe- taking people's phones away. And again, I think it's hilarious that Jack White gets like shit on when he takes this position and Mitski for the most part gets supported because uh, it just plays into how people already feel about uh, these artists. Of course. Um, but yeah, I'm not bothered personally when people are on their phones. I mean, what do I care if they're being taken out of the experience? I mean, that's... Yeah. The, I'm worried about myself. I'm not thinking about somebody else. As long as they're not holding the phone in front of my face yeah. and blocking my view. Exactly. Well, talking is way worse than yeah. than phones, of course. Um, or whistling or, like, you know, screaming shit guy. at the stage. Um, but, yeah, as long as you're not, like, raising the phone above your head and blocking my view, mm-hmm. I, I don't care. And, and I'll say, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, you know, I've gone on YouTube and I've watched like pretty good to even great videos shot on phones. Yeah. And uh, I was appreciative of it. It was like, oh, this is cool. Like I I like being able to see uh, these kind of pirated videos Mm. uh, online. I I think that's, that's kind of a cool document. And and now, you know, phones with good cameras have been around long enough that you can see videos from, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Right. Now. And it's kind of a cool record of you know bands playing live so yeah i don't know i i don't personally get up worked up about this i yeah. I, I, I i think it's kind of an overblown thing yeah i'm really. glad other people get worked up about it because this makes it a lot easier for us on the podcast yeah that's true but yeah again no one's mad at mitski okay can we just or, or no one significant is, yeah. is, is is mad at mitski about this yeah okay no so like, i oftentimes think stuff like this is a means of like laundering um you know less acceptable ideas like you know maybe laurel hell isn't that good and you just kind of launder it through oh i'm mad at her about phones like you would see this a lot with you know Bandcamp, for example or uh, I remember, like, Chance the Rapper and Arcade Fire had, like, you know, people were, like, kind of mad about the record, but, like, it was not particularly cool to voice that. But once they did anything else non-musical that you can make fun of, you go in there. Yeah, maybe so. But, again, I I really – look, maybe I'm wrong. Writers, you know, listeners write in, yeah. tell me I'm wrong. But my sense is that this is a made-up story, uh, that – People were not upset at her about this, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Certainly someone was mad at her about it, but yeah. I don't think it was significant. Uh, but I don't know. Let's get to our mailbag segment. Yeah. Thank you all for writing into our show. We, we get lots of letters every week, and it's always great to hear from um, our listeners. You know, We look at every single one. We can't read them all, unfortunately. But we've been doing a few more emails yeah. lately. We've been doing two instead of one, which has mm-hmm. been cool. Um, but yeah, if you want to hit us up, hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, do you want to read this first question? Uh, yes, I do. So this comes to us from Ashley in Baltimore. 
Um, shout out to Baltimore. Uh, and first off, Steve, hi, Stephen Ian. Love the pod. Okay, next mailbag question. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Ashley from Baltimore writes, I was hoping I could ask for your take on music videos. I grew up in the 90s, and while the form's peak cultural relevance was probably already in decline, I still got to experience the TRL era. That's total request live for our, like, under-18 demographic listening right now. It was a show there they showed Backstreet Boys and Corn videos. Uh, I understand the continued existence of music videos as a promotional tool for the big pop acts, particularly those who are canny enough to turn their release into an event, such as... Lil Nas X, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, etc. Certainly the advent of YouTube helped to ensure that they stuck around after MTV moved away from music folks programming. But I'm less certain of the utility of music videos for indie bands. To use some of my hometown acts as an example, I'm not sure why Future Islands, Turnstile, or Beach House need to put out music videos to accompany their singles. Do labels push for it? Is it the YouTube algorithm? I feel like I know a decent number of indie heads, both online and real life, and I can't say I hear much conversation about or interest in music videos. With few exceptions, a lot of the indie music videos I do happen to watch seem either low effort, low budget, or both, which leads me to think that most bands aren't invested in them as primary modes of artistic expression. So I guess my question is, who is the indie music video for? Thanks, Ashley in Baltimore. That's a really good question. That's a great actually. question. I've I've often wondered this myself because I you know if you think about the music videos that have made a significant cultural impact in the past you know say five years or so, I mean there's this is America yeah like childish Gambino, which was such a good video that I think it caused people to overrate the song. I think the song is just okay, but the video is pretty striking yes. visually. And then I guess you have WAP would be oh, another yeah. one and Lil Nas um, X too. Right, that's true, Little Nas X. But like, in terms of an indie act, I mean, is there an equivalent to something like OK Go? You remember OK Go? <laughs> of course, I remember OK Go. You know, the they We're remembering some guys' lifestyle. I remember OK Go before well, they I'm did a, those videos. I'm asked. This is also, you know, rhetorically yeah. asking the audience this right. as well. If they remember <laughs> OK Go, a band from Chicago, they built their career essentially on making viral music videos or, or what was viral yeah. back in like the what, late 90s, early 2000s? I guess it would oh, have been God, that was like late 2000s. 2000s. Yeah. Right. It would have been after YouTube uh, right. was introduced. Yes. Um, and I don't really think there is. I don't think there's a band that has broken out because they had a video that reached people outside of their fan base. Yeah. And, you know, like, uh, I, I think that there is a utility for indie bands because, um, like, look, I don't, as far as, like, what it does monetarily, I, I think YouTube actually pays better per stream than most streaming services. So I don't know if there's, like, a sideways uh, means of, like, generating uh, revenue that way. But, you know, like, you, it's funny you mentioned Turnstile. And um, I think about turnstile as the sort of band that really does benefit from a video if it's like a high energy rock band that you can just do like put together a well done live performance video i think that can you know generate interest in a way that like just the song itself doesn't you know i think particularly like dogleg when they released fox when they shot that at Bledfest. That, I think, got people to, like, really be more interested in them than the song itself would have. I think the Armed, uh, you know, All Futures, great song when I heard it. But then you see the visual angles, like, oh, my God, these guys look like American Gladiators. It deepens the experience of this as well. I think Pup is maybe, they're not a band that's broken through specifically because of their videos. But all their videos are awesome. And I think that that generates a 
a good will for them uh, that they may not have been able to generate just based on the singles alone. So there is a utility for them. Also, I think bands think they're fun for the most part. Otherwise, I don't think they would do them. Yeah, I, I, two things I would add to all the points you just made. Number one, when you put out a music video, music websites will will write about it. Yeah. So there is that promotional thing. I think more so than if it's just a single, if there's a video it's more likely that it's going to get some play so that, so there is some promotional benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second point, you know, you talked about how YouTube uh, pays better per stream than a lot of other streaming platforms. I don't know if this is for sure true, but it seems true. I mean, YouTube is probably the biggest music streaming platform of all. Like it, it certainly is about as big as Spotify. I mean, I feel like it's probably bigger than Spotify. I, I don't know if this has been measured out, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of people listen to music mm-hmm. on YouTube. You know, it, it's a free service. Um, there's things on YouTube that you can't get other places because they're not, you know, either it's like a bootleg recording or it's a you know a yeah. recording that's come out of print or something. Um, so I think there is a benefit knowing that so many people listen to music on this platform that if you have a video that is uh, fun to look at. Yeah. It just makes it a little bit more likely that, that people are going to check out your video more. So mm-hmm. that I think would be the utility. I mean, I think Ashley is right in the sense that I don't think most of the time there's like a huge impact because again, I don't think that there's been a band that broke out because they had a great video. I, 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 I if there is, I can't think of one right now. Yeah. Um, but it can help, again, on a platform where a lot of people listen to music. Maybe it gets a few more thousand people in the door, which can make a difference sometimes. Yeah. Uh, let's get to our next question. This comes from Mitch in Denver. Oh, that's, uh, uh, yeah, Mitch love from Denver. Mitch, Mitch from Denver. How do you guys feel about allmusic.com? <laughs> do you enjoy the writing? Do more of your buddies, contemporaries, write for Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, Uprocks? Let me know what you think because I think they are doing great reviews weekly over there, indie and otherwise. What do you think of allmusic.com, Ian? <laughs> okay, so I got to preface this. Again, I know that we have this huge, you know, Gen Z, Gen Alpha demographic who might not have lived during a time where there just wasn't a whole lot of internet to go around. Um, but for me, when I think about like in 2000 to 2002, when I had a lot of jobs in like call centers uh, or just like mindless internships, like I worked for Music Today where I'd like fill out like track, like tour routing things for Bob Weir's solo act or something like that. Um, Rat Dog? Yeah, I think It would have been so. Rat Dog. Yeah, okay. I, I'm going to trust you on this one. But oh, yeah, yeah but, but, but back then, you know, when... I had a lot of time in front of a computer and not a lot of internet. All Music Guide was a godsend because at the time, you know, I was still on the verge of going through a lot of like musical discovery phases, like going through a Springsteen phase, wanting to discover, you know, like Pink Floyd. And, you know, at the, you know, in, in 2000, like Pitchfork was more of like the kind of Jack Black from High Fidelity, like the record store geek that like at both times you admired but were a little bit scared of uh all music guy was like kind of the kindly older brother or like the english teacher who really wants to put you on to the clash and you could look at their discography and see like which ones were the five stars which ones were four and a half like which one like where do i fucking begin with neil young you know before 
my co-host made the you know the the ranking of all 55 Neil Young studio albums. All music was what we had to do. And you know, I I, I think it's a I think it's very helpful as a tool as far as contemporary goes. Um it, I'm not quite sure about its utility there because it's so overwhelmingly positive that the negative reviews are the only ones that stand out. Like there are two I think of off the top. They really did not like Bon Iver's 2011 album, and they had this weird sort of antagonistic scent, uh, view on Los Campesinos. So I think yeah. Bright Eyes too has has been not oh, yeah. well reviewed. Well, look, they're music. the I, I remember that one because I think they're the only people who dislike I'm Wide Awake It's Morning as much as I do. So. Uh, I think that's I'm looking at. It right. I think it's Steve Thomas. And you're both and you're both super insane for that take. Oh, I, I just okay. want to say you're both crazy for not loving that <laughs> album. But yeah, otherwise, you know the one the one thing that um, sticks, you know, uh, uh, what like uh, sticks in my craw is that like what people say. You know, if we're really going to reach out to the youth, um, is that I actually brought this up on Twitter to Stephen Thomas Erlewine once that. Um, it just seems like their coverage of uh, emo bands is like not, it's like poor to non-existent. Like they'll maybe have like a two-line bio and like they'll not review a single. They won't re- review a single like say Foxing record or uh, the world is a beautiful place. Like none of those have any sort of writing about it. And what he said was that well, you know, we focus mostly on the bios. Like we just don't have enough manpower to really write about that sort of stuff. So. I don't know. I mean, I think even to this day, I still think it's a useful tool, especially if I have to like kind of fake my way writing about a band. <laughs> like I took, yeah. a, like I'm reviewing a band. It's like tenth album just for kicks, and like I got to kind of fake my way through knowing what the fuck their first nine sounded like. Yeah, I think it's a great reference. I mean, it's been around forever. I to answer uh, Mitch's question, I really like AllMusic.com, and for many of the reasons that Ian just said, I mean, yeah. it was the original resource uh for you know the catalog style of music writing like Uh if you wanted to read reviews of every album in an artist's discography that that's where you would go and it's really like it's still that i mean there's really no other site that does what they do um i don't really read them for indie music or contemporary pop or anything like that like what i tend to get the most out of with all music is like that's where i find out that like there's a new jackson brown album or something (laughs) you know what i mean like 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 legacy acts that don't get covered by um, like the big music sites, like all music, they write about everything. So sometimes it'll be like, like, Oh, there's a Tony Joe white retrospective that's being released. Like I wouldn't know about that if it wasn't for all music. So I appreciate it for that. Um, I have to tell a quick story. I don't know if you know this, but I interviewed for a job at allmusic.com. Yeah. I did not know this. Yeah. So, um, I was working at my hometown newspaper at the time. I was waiting for my big chance to break into the world of online <laughs> music journalism and failing left and right. I get an interview with allmusic.com, uh, which was based in Ann Arbor, Michigan at that time. I yeah, think they're in Fred Austin. Fred Thomas writes a bunch for them, like uh, one of my favorite artists, and he's yeah, an Ann Arbor he's, guy. He's in Arbor. Yeah, so I don't know if they're still based there. I know. I think Stephen Thomas Erlewine is in Austin, Texas. Oh. So maybe the company is there too, but um, I drove six hours or so to Ann Arbor. <laughs> I had an interview with 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 Stephen Thomas Erlewine, who's a very nice guy. We we chatted, and then he led me to a cubicle with a stack of CDs. And 
for a tryout for the site, I, I basically had to listen to these albums. I think it was about six albums and write reviews over the course of like two or three hours. And the, uh, the, the way I remember it was that the expectation for a staff writer there was that you were going to write about five reviews a day at All <laughs> wow. Music. And I don't know if that's still true, but the, it was something like that. And I remember, I don't, I remember one album I had to write about was a cotton, was a Cottonmouth Kings album. Do you remember Cottonmouth Kings? <laughs> of course I remember. I live in San Diego, man. Like that music that is, still moves units out here. This is, that's a serious remember some guys a moment. So I had to write about a Cottonmouth Kings album and I'd never heard Cottonmouth Kings before this day. So I, I just had to bluff my way for the, through this review. And anyway, I ended up not taking the job. For a couple reasons, but one of them was that it just seemed like a sweatshop oh. working there, and, and, I, and I felt like I'm gonna hate music writing and music <laughs> after working here for six months because you know I, I would have been the low person on the totem pole. They weren't giving me the the fillet yeah. of new releases. I was getting the Cottonmouth Kings records and. What other other garbage they were throwing at me? I'd much rather write about a Cottonmouth Kings album than like you know, with all due respect, like the 18th Jackson Brown album. You know? Yeah, but would you want to write about that every single day? In addition to like oh, other, no. I prefer my five dis- other Cottonmouth Kings equivalent <laughs> albums. I think that would get a little tiring after a while. I prefer my disillusionment with music and music writing to have taken place over a much longer period of time than that condensed six months. I'm so burnt the fuck out that I'm just going to read books and play video games for the rest of my life's thing. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't know. I, I I would not be here today co-hosting an indie rock podcast i think if i had taken that job i think it would have burned me out pretty quickly uh so i'm glad it didn't work out for me in that instance um let's get to the meat of our episode (laughs) finally minutes in we definitely have been called out for this before that's okay it's okay to me it's now a charming quirk of this show uh that it takes a while to get to the meat of the episode uh there's a new band of horses album out today. It's called Things Are Great. Yeah, it's their sixth album, their first album in six years. And um, I wrote about this album this week. I actually did an interview with the leader of Band of Horses, Ben Bridwell. We talked about the band's entire discography. And uh, I don't know, Ian, if you've ever talked to Bridwell, but I did is- back in 2013. I just remembered this for Grantland. I did a Q&A, Band of Horses, Ben Bridwell, on the upcoming University of Georgia football season. He's a big ah. Dogs fan, so things really are great for him right now. Go dogs. So, um, so you did a kind of a different interview. I, I talked to him about <laughs> Band of Horses' career, yeah. and he was a great interview because he was very candid. Mm-hmm. He was very uh, self-effacing. I think too self-effacing at times, but yeah. um, I, I felt like, hey, man, you don't have to be so hard on yourself, uh, but... He was very honest about the band's strengths and weaknesses, mm-hmm. and it was interesting hearing him talk because one of the things that came up over and over again was this feeling of being usurped throughout mm-hmm. his career, feeling like he wasn't in control of the band's records, feeling like people, whether it be the record label or, or, or producers, pushing him away from what Band of Horses does best, which I think is evidenced on their first record, Everything All the Time, 2006, which I think is still their best record. Mm-hmm. And I, it's still one of the all-time spring albums of all oh, time. Yeah. I'm excited. 
once it hits 50 degrees here, uh, which is warm in Minnesota, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm going to blast that album. I love playing that in the spring. Yeah. Um, the rawness of that album, the directness, the earnestness, the anthemic mm. quality of that record uh, is so great. And the second record's really great too, Cease to Begin. But then after that, they move in a slicker direction. Yeah. Not quite as powerful. And Bridwell copped to that in the interview. And he said that like on the latest record, things are great, that it was him wanting to take control of his band again and and return them to that earlier, more, I guess, innocent sound. I mean, he talks about, he always talks about how he's a bad guitar player and he's not a good singer uh, and how that helped the music because he just worked on instinct and not technique and maybe the later records suffer from too much technique right um but yeah did you read that interview yeah i i really enjoyed that interview um you know be first off like i would yeah very self-effacing he would talk about like how i don't know how to play music like a few things stand out from that uh piece first of which who the who knew that Phil Eck was such a taskmaster, man? I know Daniel Eck, Phil Eck. I mean, maybe they are related. Maybe there's something in like the Eck blood that you know leads you to be like kind of this like quasi villainous character. Well, my favorite part of the interview is when, uh, other than the fact, because there's a moment in the interview where Bridwell took out his phone and he showed <laughs> me the review that I wrote of Mirage Rock for yes. Pitchfork in 2012. I gave it a 4.0. Mm. And he called it the worst fucking review um, of of my career. Well, uh, but he did it in a good natured way. It was yeah. he was very gracious about it. But he 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 said he was waiting to show me this review <laughs> once we <laughs> got to that part of the interview. Ten he was years like laying in the and making. Wait. Exactly, he could finally confront the asshole who wrote the Mirage <laughs> Rock review. Um, but my other favorite part of the interview was when he talked about Phil Eck working on Infinite Arms and how he was distracted by. <sighs> being in the running to produce the third Strokes album. <laughs> like he was, or, or, no, like, wait a minute. That would have been like Angles, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Which Before. I looked it up. That was produced by Joe Ciccarelli. Which yes. Is, who's like Real another... Real professional dude. Right. Real like, professional. He, he's like the Phil Eck of like major label rock. Yeah. Did you know? Evil Urges, like Jason Mraz albums. The He did, um, he did a Frank White Stripes Stro- record. Yeah. He did Joe's Garage, I think, too, or something like that. Um, and the so last yeah, he, Wonder Years album, yeah. So he's a so Phil Eck lost the Angles job <laughs> to Joe Ciccarelli, but like while he was working on Infinite Arms with Band of Horses, he was just distracted, yeah, by by being in the running for this job, and he eventually left the project, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like those kind of details, I'm just like, oh, someone's got to make a documentary about this era uh-huh. of 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 aughts era rock because it does seem like there was this generation of bands that came from the indie world. That had genuine pressure to conform yeah. to like a major, like there's Kings of Leon, uh, the Black Keys. Yeah. Could, could Black Keys and Band of Horses touring together this summer, by the way. Oh, that makes it's sense. Good tour. Yeah. Be good, that'd be a good summer tour. Not coming to Minnesota. Yeah. Which, that that I'm seems sure. like a real massive oversight for those exactly. two bands to not come to Minnesota. In Absolutely. The come to Minnesota in July. Black Keys and Band of Horses. I mean, the. It's like every other dude here wears flannel. Oh, God. You know, yeah. here in Minnesota. The flannel bearded population would come out in droves for that tour here. Yeah, and let's enjoy, enjoy a nice beer. Um, yeah, I, I, 
I, I also, I just love the fact that like, and I think you've brought this up a few times about like how you didn't get to review a lot of albums at Pitchfork and like your version of like the camp, like the Childish Gambino camp review is like a 4.0 review of a Band of Horses album that even Band of Horses doesn't think is very good. Um, yeah, but they can't compare though. No one is emailing me about Mirage Rock like 10 years yeah. later. Imagine if like Mirage Rock was like the album that was like from 2012 that was like fucking awesome and Celebration Rock was the one that sucked. You would have like a you would have had a podcast called Mirage Rock back then probably. Like or just, I, that's yeah, a real just, sliding doors moment. Yeah, I mean, or if I had just gone all in on Mirage Rock, if I had been like, <laughs> this is a 9.5, I love Mirage, Celebration Rock is garbage, but I love Mirage, like, I like, I just put all my money on that horse. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I think I chose wisely back Yeah, then. I think so. But the, what I, my favorite thing about the interview was just how candid he was about, like, it, I think it's really interesting when bands kind of look back on their past albums and say, yeah, I wasn't doing such great work back then because a lot of the books I read about songwriting or creativity, like even like particularly Jeff Tweedy's, uh, how to write one song, they make it a point to not be so precious about the songs you write. Um, just like put it out there, be, don't be afraid to write a bad song. And this conflicts, I think with this idea that we have as listeners that like bands think of songs as like their children it's like, uh, you know, I love them all equally. Like my new eighth album is the best thing I've ever done. And yeah, I think it, it kind of humanizes people to say like to, for them to say, yeah, I was kind of like um, strong armed by the label or this wasn't my best work. Um, we even like Cease to Begin, which is an album we he, both love. He said in the interview that I felt like I had seven songs and we had to push it. Which, to 10. I think that's kind of true, too. I've always just kind of suspected that as, like, the quick follow-up. And, like, the first single, which I think is, uh, Is There a Ghost? Is There a Ghost? One was, line uh, of the entire song. Yeah, he's like, I had I had one lyric, but Phil Eck was like, we could turn this into a song. And they did. And, yeah, it's a good song, and it was the first single from the record. Yeah. And then No One's Gonna Love You was the second one, and that was Classic. the Classic. That's a beautiful song. I listened to that a bunch Great this week. Song. That song holds up. I mean, you know, Band of Horses, uh, their best music is still great. Yeah. I mean, it, and I think they get a little underrated now. I mean, because, I mean, that first record, I think, is a classic. Classic. And the yeah. second that one is, is really good. That is like indie cast foundation, everything all the time. <laughs> Along with the fact that it sort of kind of uses a Radiohead lyric as its album title. Now, are you a cease to begin truther? I, do you think that that's better than everything all the time? But depending on how spicy I'm feeling, like you know, there are times when um, I'll say I think that those two albums are very similar to like you know the first Interpol or the first two Strokes albums, where it's like the first one is the classic that's acknowledged, but like if you're feeling relatively spicy, you might say the second one's better. You know, if I really break it down, I don't think Cease to Begin is a better album. Some of the songs I like more, it does feel a bit rushed. Um, but I think that those that comparison kind of makes sense to me now because all of those bands had their kind of major label slash wilderness phase. And I think that Interpol's album, Our Love to Admire, kind of fits alongside uh, the ones that you had mentioned before about indie bands trying to, you know, adhere to a major label sound. Um, now I think that they've turned around and are a band that people are ready to love again, because I think even more so than the bands that band of horses were compared to early on, the shins or my morning jacket. I hear 
band of horses more in modern indie rock than any of the bands that they were supposedly influenced by. Like, is that yeah. is that far off? No, I, I I don't know if it's more, but I think it's more than they get credit for. Yeah, I, I think there's other bands that get credit for influencing bands today and i don't hear band of horses come up as much mm-hmm. and they should i think you know infinite arms their third record is actually like a pretty beloved album i when i've talked to band of horses fans they often talk about that album mm-hmm. as being as good as the first two and wow. i don't agree with that but i do think it's better than certainly mirage rock i i think that was um you know they're them hitting bottom, which is weird because they were working with Glenn Johns. Like on paper, that seems like that would be a great yeah. partnership, but it didn't really work. And then Why Are You Okay? I think is actually okay. I think that's an okay album. It's certainly better than Mirage Rock. Um, this new album, it seems like a record. I have to check myself with this record because I don't want to overrate it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to overstate how good it is. It's not a return to form, I don't think. It's as good as the first two, or or even Infinite Arms. You know, Infinite Arms has a song like Laredo, which is a pretty <laughs> yeah, undeniable <classic>. song. <laughs> uh, very catchy. I don't think there's anything up to that level on this new album. Um, although Crutch, yes, uh, which was the first single, that's a really good song. This like, I think it just shows Bridwell for all of his self-effacing about like I'm not that talented, or I'm not a good guitar player, or whatever. I think he is a good craftsman. Yeah. I think he's good at writing rock songs that are catchy and compact and that are very listenable. And on this record, he returns to that with a less slick sound than yeah. we've heard from them in the past decade. Which is interesting because Crutch, which is Crutch, it's not called Crush. I got that wrong. It sounds like it sounds like Crush. Well, the lyric is Crutch, um, or whatever. Whatever it is, my favorite song of theirs in fifteen years. And the interesting thing is, like, when he's talking about like the rawness and the slit, it sounds like the Cure to me, sort of, kind of. And Band of Horses plus the Cure kind of, sort of, describes a lot of like indie music I hear right now. It's you know the self-effacing nature of it, the kind of rawness, the simplicity, the earnestness of it. Like I hear that more in uh, modern guitar-based indie rock than, like, say, the Shins, which are you know they're they're kind of more like a '60s kind of intricate songwriter type band. Like Ben Bridwell, he'll tell you, "Yo, I write, I rewrite Weed Party like at least five times per album," and you know what? That works. Yeah, yeah. Bridwell's voice, I think, is really interesting because there's a bit of a southern twang to it, which puts them in that lane where, you know, I'm sure that they've had impact on, like, Americana acts, for instance, would be drawing from them. But then it's also, it sounds a little emo-ish, his vocals. Do you hear emo bands? I mean, like... Yes, Band of Horses is, like, a very, like... you can kind of hear that, like, vis-a-vis Manchester Orchestra. That's, like, the most obvious uh, parallel, I think. Manchester is very... I, I don't know if Andy's ever said that explicitly, that he was influenced mm-hmm. by them, but it seems like an obvious touchstone. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you think about, like, Manchester Orchestra and how many bands they've influenced, it's, it's definitely there. Like, I went... I get the sense, like, when I talk to, like, certain emo or indie bands that, like, it's similar to, like, bands like Antlers, let's say, where it's seen as, like, oh, this is, you know, a past era of indie rock. But they're like, no, this, you know, this very earnest, very emotional, very compact style of music was quite, like, was quite impactful to me. So 
Um, once again, it's another situation where <laughs> like the, the remember some guys, the remember some guys, uh, wave very strong in emo bands. Yeah. And I think that for a certain generation of, of, uh, musicians, rock musicians, if you weren't into what was going on in indie music in the late two thousands, as far as like the artier stuff that was really being pushed to the forefront. And again, we've talked about this recently, but animal collective, dirty projectors, grizzly bear, that whole scene, Band of Horses was an alternative to that. You know, they were more of like a just a chunky guitar band. And uh, if you were 13 or 14 years old, you know, I could see that really speaking to you. And then, of course, here we are. Those same people now are, are, are in their mid-20s. Um, I could see them really being a, a touchdown, uh, perhaps, for that generation of musicians. But again, I mean, everything all the time, that record for sure, I think, holds up really well. You know, is it as good as is this it or turn on the bright lights? I I don't know, but I mean I I, I don't feel I, I I you know what? Let's just put it in that company. I'm yeah. gonna put it in that company because I, I think for what it is, it's it's as good at what it does as those records are at doing what they do. Yeah, I mean, like turn on the bright lights. I associate that with like a far more grand emotional state. Like when I'm like on the New Jersey transit up to New York, about to like have these like very strange weekends with my friends where I ask like everything all the time. Like you were saying, it's like, Oh, it's 60 degrees out in Athens, Georgia. Now it's time to wear shorts and bust out the shandies. Like (laughs) mind you very good times, but like not as not really as like formative. Well, you know, funeral I think is a pretty epic emotional. Oh yeah. No, it's like that is that epitomizes like, mid-2000s anthemic um but also commercial can like be i also love how like he mentioned that song has been sampled by a lot of rappers and edm artists a funeral has yeah this was in another interview that just ran today on stereo gum oh i didn't know that that's interesting yeah he talks about like how that song has had like a weirdly interesting half-life in genres that have absolutely nothing at all to do with his own well, and I, I could see that song crossing over in the same way that that Coldplay song yes, crossed over, where it's just this larger than life song, and it, you know it, it may not have like indie hipness, but it's like the kind of song that like anyone kind of likes. I mean, but it's it just did like a, have indie hipness at one point. That's true, and it was in a commercial for something. Yeah, two hundred ninety million streams. Yeah, big hit. Deserve to be a big yeah. Fan. I, uh, that's a great song. So yeah, definitely check out the album. Uh, Things are great. Hilarious album title. Yeah, by the way. awesome. Uh, great to drop that album yeah. in the world as it exists right now. I mean, yeah. it's, it's Band of it's, Horses uh, is counter programming, and like it yeah, is. Like I just want to like say about this record, like it's. I think that like there are times where you might actually kind of trick yourself into thinking an album is like actual good when it's just like not bad from an artist who's been around for a long time and just kind of has faded a bit no like i actually enjoy listening to this album it's like i will return to this throughout the year i think it's a solid like 7.0 yeah like three and a half stars like which is really good and i think it's a a very listenable three and a half stars you're not going to be mad when it's on We 
We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Well, here's an album that you will be mad when you're listening to. Um, it's from <laughs> it's from it's from a band called uh, Vain FM. Uh, their new album, "This World Is Going to Ruin You." I love uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I love how this message mes- meshes with a band of horses album called "Things Are Great." Um, this world is going to ruin you. So Vain they they used to be called Vane. They're now called Vane FM. Nobody calls them Vane FM. But if you're looking for them on Spotify, I just have to use the real name. So in 2018, they put out a record called Error Zone, which um, I don't think new metal or metalcore had really gotten the kind of foothold that it had in indie circles at that time. But the first song on that record sampled the Amen breakbeat and sort of sounded like Slipknot. Uh, it's one of the most awesome songs of in the metal uh, genre from the past couple of years. It was a big hit uh, in its in its realm, and then they just kind of took four years. Like this album was actually finished in early 2020, and they just had it on hold. Uh, but you know, this one, if you like metal, if you like metal core, this is definitely a new metal band. Um, this record kind of goes more in different sort of new metal, like kind of post new metal directions. There's a little bit of death tones some uh, Nine Inch Nails circa The Fragile Experimentation, and just other songs that take more after Converge. Um, I cannot wait for this album to hit streaming because I've only been able to listen to it through a Holix, uh, like promo jukebox player where you don't get the seamless uh, play. Like, you'll be at the gym and you have to wait for the site to load. Um, yeah, so this, if you like some of the stuff I've recommended on the past podcast, you know, like Knocked Loose, or the arm, or the other like heavy ass music that um, I imagine Steve might not touch with the ten foot pole. This album's going to be for you. It's thoroughly ridiculous, but also really awesome. So Van FM, the world's going to ruin you. I like some of those bands that you mentioned. I, I like the Armed. Yes, I like some of the other stuff too. <laughs> I've I've listened to. Uh... So like, I saw a video actually for one of the songs from this vein. Oh, record. is it the one with like the the big like bloodbath at the end where it's right? Like, That's it's like awesome. an insane video. Which yeah. I have to say, like you, to circle back to our music video conversation, that is a song that I enjoy more because of the video. Yeah, it is uh, so funny that video. it's and like it's self aware, right? Um, yeah, it's extreme. It's it's hilarious. So that's a great video. Yeah. So uh, uh, so in that instance. Video help the indie band. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a little band called Sonic Youth, who incredibly have a new album huh? coming out next week. It's called In Out In, and uh, it it comes courtesy of the great indie label Three Low Bed Recordings. Yeah. It's a collection of instrumentals that were recorded between 2000 and 2011. So you get five tracks uh, spread out over 45 minutes. And it actually really covers the gamut of like what Sonic Youth does. There's some really beautiful, vibey, quiet tracks. There's some just screechingly noisy tracks. There's some catchy rocking tracks. Uh, you get a little bit of everything on this album. Uh, and look, it's great to have new Sonic Youth music because I don't think that this band will ever get back together again. No. So <laughs> there, will, there will be no reunion album. Maybe uh, there will. I don't know. I doubt it. No, but absolutely not. 
an album like this is really the only uh, way that we're going to get new Sonic Youth music, and I, I think it's a really cool record. Uh, so again, it comes out uh, next week, uh, March 11th. I actually ordered a physical copy of this like a month or two ago, and I, I got my copy already. So if if you've ordered this, you may already have it and already may might be enjoying it. Otherwise, definitely check it out next week. Again, it's called In Out In, and it's by... Uh, up-and-coming band named Sonic Youth. Mm. Uh, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 